Farzi, as I sit in my basement and you sit in front of a bottle of scotch and some unknown record, um, <laughs> whoa, it is, whoa. I say that because I'm assuming it's a rush record. Assuming? Assuming. <laughs> I'm going to have a um, heart attack on the start of this podcast. Uh, second greatest Canadian band. Oh, my um, good Lord. It's it a is, good thing you're in your basement. I would fair. beat you. I would beat you. Okay. It is very obvious that we are in different times here during this global pandemic because we're doing this from our homes. But we were just talking off record. We both had the privilege, I guess, if you will, to uh, enjoy a keg dinner while not, not dining at the keg, but instead of dining at home. We both did the keg takeout system the other day. I have a question for you. You went and picked yours up. I was a little more lazy. I got them to deliver. If you are at the keg and you sit down at that type of restaurant, obviously you're going to tip your server. Because I got the keg delivered. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, my question is how much. You, you tip for sure because it's, it's, a, it's a keg employee delivering it. It's not like it's through skip the dishes. Okay. You have to go right to the keg directly. So it's not through a third party. It is um, the keg themselves. How much do you de- tip that delivery driver? Because normally... Your server is there to top up your beer and wine or water. They bring you the bread. They ask if you would like another loaf of bread because I love that bread and I'm fat and I eat all four slices before they, the dinner comes. You know, they ask how your meal is going. They ask for the dessert. They're, they're working. This delivery driver took 15 minutes, 10 minutes to drive it to my house, swiped my card, and went on their way. How much... Do you tip the delivery driver? We are about to find out just how <laughs> cheap you are. It, to me, this is a, a no-brainer. It's funny you ask because I thought about it as I tipped on my takeout tonight. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I do standard 10%, maybe a bit more on takeout, 20% in-house. If right. they're delivering it to me and it's a keg employee, that's 20%. Hands really? down, without a question, that's 20%. They brought it to your house. You well, did I apologize not, then. <laughs> you did not have to move. You admitted already yeah, but so why you t- laziness. It's a $100 meal. Why am I giving her $20 to drive it out? Because you didn't have to do anything. You literally went on your computer, placed your order, and waited. That's a 20% tip. I didn't go on the computer. I had to call them actually. Oh, so, I'm sorry. That's, I know that's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll show you my phone bill. <laughs> so I, I'm going to assume that it was a little less than uh, 20% on your tip there, Popper. Well, it was, it was, I, we were talking about it. And I'm like, do we tip? Like, cause normally if you get the third party, it's like, you know, tip your driver and you throw on the, you know, five or 10% or whatever it is on the, on the app. You're just like, yeah, sure. Here's your couple bucks. But with the keg, and I love the keg. And obviously their food and service is top notch. Uh, the reputation is is high. And I just wasn't sure. I'm like, do we tip? They're driving it from the restaurant. And then we got we had the conversation ourselves. Well, is it actually a restaurant employee? Does that tip go to the kitchen staff or is it just the front of house? Because the front of the house is just answering phone calls. If that person who delivered my food is just the front of the house who's answering phone calls, delivering food, I don't know if they need that much of a tip. If it's going to go back to the kitchen, now we're talking. Because whoever prepared my prime rib, mucho bueno. 
And this is where the whole tipping conversation gets a little fuzzier, right? Of course. I Listen, when I'm out for a meal, I don't have time in my life. I'm too busy filling my fat face to worry about how the tips are distributed in any particular restaurant. I just go on the assumption that it's kind of pooled. So the kitchen staff is being yeah. tipped out and across the board. I know it's not that way everywhere, but that's the assumption I go on. That's why the 20% I'm figuring it's getting spread around a little bit. So again, I, I, that's, that's a good point though on, on that employee. And in fact, I was at the Waterloo location on Northfield drive tonight. Eric says hi, by the way. Oh, Eric's a great guy. Like, like I need this in my life. I'm picking up dinner. I make a little bit of small talk about, Hey, you know, how's business during the pandemic? You guys holding on. And we start talk. He starts talking. He had a lot to say. And then he's like, Hang on a second. It's Farwell, right? Yep. Hey, you talked to Popper lately? I said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking to him for the podcast in about an hour. Oh, tell Popper. Popper. I tell Popper. I say, hi. All right. Settle down there. Settle That's down. Funny. Don't ruin my meal before I eat it. Uh, more on Eric in just one second, but I just want to go. I normally go into a restaurant when I'm there and I'm thinking the bar is 18%. That's what I'm tipping if I have a good experience. If you are over the top, if the server you know, makes it a real enjoyment, I'm like, wow, this person was awesome. Then they'll get 20 or something higher. And if they're crusty or whatever, then we drop them down to about 15. But on this delivery, I wasn't sure what to do. And it was a $99 tab for two meals. And I tipped 10 bucks. So. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's not much. I know it's 10%. But what did they do? That's my thing. Yeah. So again, assuming I tip skip drivers less. I'll say that. Listen, I am my own skip driver. Don't even get me started on the food delivery apps. I'm not, not the biggest fan, but I, in talking to Eric tonight and he told me about obviously life in pandemic time and how many staff had to be laid off for obvious reasons. So there aren't that many there right now mm-hmm. so that if it's pooled it's being pooled by or amongst fewer people but it, it, listen and and i get it who who knows but geez i figure if you're dropping a honey on a meal come on open up it, your wallet let the let the moths fly out there listen guy. and I'll, if i'm really being honest she got ten dollars because it was paid for by a gift card that I had, a $100 keg gift card, so it worked perfect. So I, I tipped her like $10.73 or something because there was 73 cents left on the card. Um, and five bucks was all I had in my house. That was it. Or 10 bucks, sorry. 10 bucks was all I had in my house. was scoured. I'm like, I'm not giving her six quarters to make an extra dollar fifty. Isn't that, that's a challenge right now, eh? Like, I have no cash, man. Right. Who, has, who carries cash anymore? And I'm, no I'm the old one. I've carried it for a long time. Even I... Since the pandemic began, you, I used to call it walking around money. There's always a little bit in my pocket, right? Yeah. If you want to roll me next time I'm in Owen Sound, you can get my, you know, 25 bucks, right? But I don't even carry that anymore. I'd, I'd give you my toonie. Um, you mentioned running into people. My neighbor, Tom, who uh, owns the spot next to me here, when we got talking in the summer when I got my dog, I left him a note and just said, you know, we got this dog, put a picture on it, just said, my name's Gus. I moved in next door. If you hear me barking, I'm just getting used to my crate. Here's a couple cases of beer to drown out the noise. I figure because nice little, you know, make, make it easier on the neighbors. Anyway, Tom and I got talking and then uh, he, he said, what's your last name, Chris? I said, Pope. And he go, he kind of looks at me and he's like, from the, not from the Firewall and the Pope podcast. And I'm like, 
Tom's like 63 years old. I'm like, what are you doing listening to the podcast? I had no idea. Anyway, he stopped me the other day and he goes, you know, Firewall ripping you on air the other day. And I'm like, what is he saying now? And apparently, I have a microphone, I, Popper. I, I know. Use it. Yeah. I know. Apparently, I called Cousin Eddie Uncle Eddie. Somehow. Oh, geez. I, and you were very upset at that. I'm not happy about that. <laughs> not happy. It's Cousin Eddie. Come on. You call well, I know. Uncle. Well, then why'd you call him Uncle? I, I don't know. Was it online or was it in a podcast? No, it was on the Twitter. I wanted uh, to, and that see the and the only reason, like, believe it or not, me, I I actually just picked my spots because you know the kind of rabbit hole is going to be you're going to be digging if you start that. But clearly, oh, I, I just would have blamed it on a couple Molson Canadians. Of course, you would have. I don't know what what's worse. What's worse, calling you out publicly online to correct you when you just go back on your tweets, you'll see the uncle. I'm sure I would, Uncle Eddie. But is that worse, or is it worse to, to submarine you in case you're not listening and call you out on the show? Oh, neither. I'm going to take, I don't take either personally. It's a mistake. I, I make mistakes. Um, I think the main reason why, and I'm sure you can uh, relate to this or attest to this, is I don't have a cousin Eddie in my family. I have an uncle Eddie. Okay. And, you know, my, my uncle's a little like that. I can see where the mistake would come from then, yeah. but there are sorry, certain things. Sorry, Parse, but, you know. We're, we're, <laughs> we're all allowed to make mistakes. I get it. And I will grant you all the leash in the world for that. But uh, the mistake can't be Cousin Eddie being Uncle Eddie. There are some things that are just sacred, and Cousin Eddie is one of them. That's fair. All right. I mean, whatever. You made the mistake of liking Rush. So. Well, I was just going to point – the other mistake you've already made. So let's just finish that because oh, you, you, you dropped in and I let slide, but I made the mental note to come back to it. Second best Canadian band. Yes. Like, Rush is without question, and I will argue it until the day I die, the greatest rock band of all time, period. But rock band, not just Canadian band, as Popper turns his camera to show off. Is that, is, is that the Tragically Hip, Chris? That is. I, and I love when we're well, in Kingston my light. and we're on Tragically Hip Way to go to the arena, the Leon Center. I mean, I, I love it all. But no, Rush is the greatest rock band, not just Canadian band. And everybody should know that the record behind me right now is Hemispheres because that's the one with the red vinyl. That's what makes it so cool. You're welcome for the little bit of a lesson. That is what makes it so cool. Well, among other things. Yeah, that particular record. Yes, red vinyl. I gotcha. All right. I got you. What's, more importantly, what kind of what kind of scotch you got back there? And you hold on before we get to that. <laughs> what <do> you, <laughs> for our listeners to the podcast? Or far as he normally is in the studio, so I don't get to uh, see his basement too often that he just redid last year. Why on earth do you have an electric guitar, Nick Nurse? Whoa, easy! I would lo- I would love to see you strumming on the guitar. Can <laughs> your working. fingers reach the end? I'm working on it. It's a pandemic project over here. So, you know, you pour a little bit of the Macallan 18 and you pick up the guitar. You may wow. or may not plug it in and off you go. Okay. I'm no, like Alex, we, I'm no Alex Lifeson, but hey. Looks like we might have some entertainment on the road. You never know. I got an acoustic down here in my basement. It's just for decoration. I, it's not even tuned. I don't know how to play a single string on it. I just like thought I do. it looks cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. it goes right with the red vinyl rush hemispheres album and uh yeah some okay bottles of scotch back there i suppose what what have we been doing during the pandemic we're not going to hockey rinks i can tell you i've been drinking a lot i actually got a bottle of uh conor mcgregor's proper 12 for christmas from my brother it's an irish whiskey it is phenomenal um maybe a little too phenomenal it's 
extremely smooth. So it becomes quite dangerous. <laughs> like you don't well, need anything, not a, a drop of water, not ice, nothing. Just way you go. Far if less your legal drinking age. Right. Far less dangerous when there's no place to go. Exactly. Hey, what do you think of Mike McKenzie? The little thing he's doing online here, getting uh, minor hockey kids uh, or giving something for minor hockey kids and young children trying to get into the game, um, some education on the game and what it can mean to you. I think that, and we're going to be talking to Mike McKenzie in uh, probably 10 days or so. Well, no, the, the episode after this one will be Mike McKenzie. I have always sensed that he's a guy that uh, knows where he came from, mm-hmm. if I can put it that way. And certainly as one of the young, bright minds in the game, wants to, he, he's very much aware of uh, the the traditions that, that he'll want to see carried on. So I, I love to see that he's, he's kind of looking after that, that next cohort of fans that are coming through, of players that are coming through. And if you keep them engaged in the game right now and you're giving them time like he's giving them like this, I, I think it's phenomenal. Great yeah, way minor, to reach. Minor hockey webinars online. Uh, I think it's great. Gives the local kids a chance to feel like they're – getting knowledge and sharing time with the Kitchener Rangers general manager and head coach and Bob McKenzie's son, the guy that played semi-pro hockey. Um, If you want to check it out, first one's on the 17th, Mike McKenzie 11 is his Twitter handle. You can find links and stuff there because I think you have to sign up. Too bad he couldn't get a better first guest. That's fine. See his first guest was? I didn't see his first guest. Ben Finelli. Oh, Really? (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have to – you think Ben will slum it with us one of these times? Because we're going to have to get him on – I know we had him on previous episodes of the uh, Farwell. He's a big podcast. dog now. I know. He's, I think he runs the podcast world, actually. I had him on the show on 570 News the other day, and he, the guy blows my mind. Like, that is one intelligent human. He really thinks about things in an interesting way. I couldn't agree with you more. And if our listeners are, if you guys are struggling during this pandemic, which a lot of people are, just read his timeline or reach out to him because you cannot have a conversation with that man and not leave in a better mood. He is one of those few people in this world that always finds the, the light in everything and the positive in everything and will leave you um, once he gets talking about what he went through and how he views the world and his outlook on society and his outlook on giving back. I feel like you're, whenever you leave that conversation, you're just ready to charge through a wall. <laughs> so if, if, if you ever want to talk to Ben, obviously, as we know, Farzi is very, uh, very open to talking with anyone. And if you have any issues or whatever, you just want to talk with Ben Finelli, reach out. Cause I'm sure he'd be happy to help out. We will definitely uh, try to get Ben on a future episode of this podcast. If there's somebody whose story you would like to hear, send us an email, farwellandpope at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope or at farwell underscore OHL. Uh, Mike McKenzie, who we've just talked about, will be our guest on this podcast next week. And one of the interesting things about Mike, I think, besides, of course, the famous family that he is a part of, is that he is now an OHL general manager with a very well-established and well-regarded team in the Ontario Hockey League. And he came through the NCAA route, which I think is, uh, you know, interesting for sure for comparative purposes. So we'll get into that among other things, including the famous family with Mike McKenzie on the podcast next week. Before we get to our guest this week, Popper, uh, news out of the West in the Canadian Hockey League. And 
I don't know about you, but lots of people starting to ask, well, if the Western Hockey League is talking about a 25-game season, is that what the Ontario Hockey League is going to do? Thoughts? You just don't want to work. I know you want to drink your Irish whiskey. No, I w- listen, I wish I was back in a rink so bad right now. Like, I legit went and got an oil change today just to give myself something to do. Uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> that's, that's not bad, a euphemism for something, is it? That, no, mean, an actual okay, oil just, change, okay, yeah. Okay, good, yeah. Just to sit in a Mr. Lube for 20 minutes and figure out instead of just sitting on my couch. I just, I commend the league of trying to put a product on the ice. I understand why they went with a shortened season given everything that's going on. But why do we have one third of the Canadian Hockey League trying to run a season since what, September in the QMJHL off and on through all these COVID hits, the Ontario hockey league doing absolutely nothing. And now the dub, the other third of the CHL coming out with a 25 game schedule, all while all three leagues are supposed to be competing for Memorial cup, which nobody has said anything about. I think all three leagues need to get on the same page and figure something out. The OHL needs to figure out what they're doing in the first place. But if you're going to have a 25-game season, again, I'm going to ask the question that far too the, the question in my mind that has been asked too many times during this global pandemic, and that question to you, Mike Farwell, is why? Why play the games? Why? Why force in why? a season? Yeah. It's a 25-game season. Why? I. There's no guarantee. Point- I, I sorry, I get it. If the Memorial Cup's still there, but we don't know if the Memorial Cup is still going to be handed out. So what is the, if, what's the point? Well, so I've given this a little bit of thought, shockingly. You remember we talked about this on the podcast last week. Every once yeah. in a while we'll be on a road trip. Hey, Pulper, I've, I've been thinking. And then you know, okay, you're in for, you're in for one. It's not going to be, it's not that outrageous this time. But my, my thoughts on it, I couldn't agree more. 25 games, if all three leagues kind of got their feces amalgamated and decided they're going to play some sort of consistent across all leagues, 25 game schedule. Could you really do that? And then say, we're going to move on to a playoff format and a championship. That would be tough. Like we've seen pro sports play abbreviated as we're recording this, the NHL is embarking on a 56 game season. I mean, you know, that's different. You know, it's about two thirds as opposed to one third which is what the CHL season would amount to if it's 25 games. So I don't know that you could in good faith or good conscience go from a 25 game season into some sort of playoff into a championship. If MasterCard as a Memorial Cup sponsor is that anxious to give you their money or get value for their sponsorship, maybe you figure out something. But more than anything where I've landed on this as to the why, I think you would do it and I Personally, I've got no inside knowledge, but if I'm doing 25 games, I'm not, I'm obviously not awarding a traditional Memorial Cup because I just don't see how you do that in good faith or good conscience. But 25 games, at least you're giving the players meaningful hockey. And I think that matters. I think there is value in that because that's what I keep coming back to in all of this. I think about players who this year would have been in their NHL draft year who are not playing in front of scouts players last year who maybe got overlooked 
the year before, or maybe last year was their draft year. Sorry, they got overlooked, but they were starting to come on. You know, I, I hate to make it so Kitchener-centric, but Reed Vlad comes to mind, right? There's a guy, first rounder into the O, only scored five in his rookie season, started coming on in his sophomore season, got overlooked at the draft, but there's something about the guy when you watch him as much as we do that you sense and you're thinking, okay, so maybe he's just a bit of a late bloomer, but maybe he gets picked up after his third season. Well, how does that happen now when you haven't had meaningful hockey to play? So if you can find a way to play 25 games, to play some kind of glorified tournament, to play league play against real competition in front of scouts so they can actually see you in game action, I would argue there is some value in that. I think Reed Vallad's probably uh, one of the guys that doesn't want a season because scouts have seen him twice as much <laughs> as the other players that are going to be in the draft this yeah. year, and they'll take a shot at him because they know what they're getting. Um, I I would love a tw- – listen, I have nothing against a 25-game season, but you're all under a CHL umbrella. Then it should have been announced the WHL is doing a 25-game season, the OHL is doing a 25-game season, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League is going to cancel everything they've already done because it's been a – crap show and they're going to do a 25 game season and we're all going to meet one of you know three teams are going to come in and do a small bubble in oshawa and i think that's the only way to do it i because you're talking about meaningful hockey people in this league want to win a memorial cup that's the thing that's that's what it's all about going to that memorial cup tournament beyond being on the national stage and hoisting one of the most difficult if not the most difficult trophy in sport to win because you only have a certain amount of time to do so and it's across three leagues. Your team has to be in the right. Anyway, that's a whole other argument. But I, I think you have to give it away, whether it's a shortened season or not. I don't think you can just give away like, a, oh, and you win the COVID Cup. Because then what, do, what does that do for the players? What do they get to say? They're in the National Hockey League and people are talking about their history. Do they say, oh, he's a Memorial Cup winner? Or do they say, oh, he won 26 games? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. See, I think that would just COVID would become the year the Memorial Cup got canceled, right? Well, then why do that? And if that's the case, then why do a season? Well, there's no to, point. Uh, yeah, I, I think the point is for that meaningful game action, right? To give the it's it's one thing to but skate is that worth and it for work their out. Well, but this would happen only if it's safe enough to do so, right? Because as we know and as we've talked about, look, we've been having these conversations for a couple of months now, and from day one, way back when there was a possibility of starting in February with a 40 game schedule or December with a 60 game schedule player safety and the health of the players is going to be of paramount concern. I, I will continue to say that. I think the league has demonstrated that certainly in the Ontario hockey league. So as long as it's safe to play, they'll figure out something. And I think the something that they figure out when safety is no longer their concern or once they've got a safety plan in place, yeah, 25 meaningful games, some court look we i spoke just today with our good friend jeff merrick from sportsnet and he talked about the various scenarios that are out there including an ncaa style tournament including bubbles in in kingston and sault saint marie and sarnia in london and maybe even something in kitchener it's all kinds of scenarios being bandied about right now but what the league ultimately lands on if anything i don't know i i don't mind a 25 game season um in fact, I, I kind of like it because it at least gives the players something to say. We had a shortened season. Yep. There's something. 
those players in there. Like you, you talk about we we sit here and we rant and rave about how good the hockey is because these players are trying to prove themselves. Let's do a twenty five game season and watch those players who've been sitting at home doing nothing but riding a bike and lifting weights in their draft year come out and try to show up scouts. They will be going balls to the wall and it will be outstanding. But if you're going to do a twenty five game season in the dub, you have to have some equalness. The Q can't play sixty games and be tired by the time a Memorial Cup, I do air quotes, um, Memorial Cup comes up. The OHL can't have no season and then just say, oh, Oshawa's our team to go in. By the way, here's Phil Tomasino. Yeah, I, it just doesn't make any sense. There's got And I'm sure there will be, and right now we're just not hearing the full story because I don't think the CHL is really that blind to the issue. Um, I just I want uniform across the brands, and I do want that Memorial Cup style tournament. I don't care if it's called the Memorial Cup tournament. I don't care if there's eight teams or or nine teams, the host and and ten teams are the host and three from each each league. I don't care how they do it. Just give me a, a a CHL champion versus just okay. Well, this is the year where there's an O, a Q, and a Dub champion, and nobody we don't know who wins the Memorial Cup. Welcome to the beginning of your tenure as president, Mr. Dan McKenzie. Right? right last season, that was the news. We've got the new CHL president as David Branch just settles into the commissioner's role in the O, but he's got to figure this out. And we were talking just last week on the podcast how good the hockey was, certainly in the gold medal game at the World Juniors. Dan McKenzie said during that tournament he intends on having some kind of season for the CHL. So, yeah. and if that's any indication, because you were just talking about how how hungry these guys would be to get back on the ice and compete. Maybe you're in for a bit of a treat in uh, May and June. I don't know. And I think we will be, to be honest. I think the hockey will be great Um, because a lot of these guys, like you look at every year. So you're a rookie. You realize I only have 25 games to prove that I belong on this team and in this league. You have a sophomore who says, I only have 25 games to show that my game has taken that next step that I believe I deserve to be drafted. You have a third-year player that says, I have 25 games to show my National Hockey League team that I deserve a contract, that I am ready, or that I got overlooked in the draft and I shouldn't have. And then you got those older guys who are like, I, I shouldn't be in the O, or I deserve an NHL contract or a pro shot. I think 25 games is going to put a lot of pressure on people, and I think the hockey that we could get out of it would be fantastic. I would love to see it. I would love to see something, mostly for the players' sake. But uh, I just think, give me a champ. That's yeah, all I want. <laughs> just want a chance. You're saying there's just, a chance? All yeah, right. No, I just want a champ. I just a want a champ. champ. Just give me a champion. I want one team standing at the end. No participation trophies. We watched the World Junior, where Canada's getting a second place trophy. They gave sweet. They gave Sweden players crap for throwing their silver medals in the stand. If somebody would have tried to give me a second place trophy, you'd break it. <laughs> Right? Just break it on the spot? See you later. No, I don't oh, want it. Let's give it right back. Are you kidding? Second place trophy. How ridiculous is that? That reminds me of the Memorial Cup in 2008 played in Kitchener when Spokane beat the Rangers in the final. And the, the Memorial Cup itself broke on presentation, yep. upon presentation. And I'm on the air with Don Cameron up in the broadcast booth. And he comes out with, oh, my God, they dropped it. And then he apologized for his exclamation because of course Don Cameron would never say oh my god on the air but he did in that moment let me tell you oh Oh, oh my they dropped it (laughs) so good oh so he said he said exactly the same thing everyone was thinking at the time of course right yeah I I remember watching did they drop it (laughs) oh my gosh too funny real real quick I know we got to get to the pod just real quick on on that 
because it was on my mind with that Memorial cup. Um, if whatever happens, does Oshawa, would Oshawa or Sault Ste. Marie have paid to put in a bid? Do you know how that works? Do they pay to put in a bid or do they have to pay the CHL once they're awarded the Memorial cup? Because what happens to the Memorial Cup bid? How does yeah. that work? There, there would obviously be some money involved in putting the bid together. For but sure. Yeah. No, you would. The Oshawa Generals organization would not be out money at this right. point. I feel like we're kind of shafting the Sioux by not including them, but I think we both just came to the conclusion that it was going to Oshawa anyway. Hey, Kyle, send Kyle Raftus, that is, send the hate, hate mail to Pope at Farwell and Pope at gmail.com. You want to hear a story from somebody? Let us know via that email address or on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope at Farwell underscore OHL. Mike McKenzie, the head coach and general manager of the Kitchener Rangers, is on deck a week from now. But this podcast this week is one I've been looking forward to because this is one of the first guys I got to know when I started in the league. He's been around forever, but he's just such a genuine gentleman. I think that if you were to ask anybody, that's how they would describe this next guest. And I'll never forget, we mentioned his name, we'll mention again, Don Cameron, when he stepped away from doing radio broadcasts and I moved into the position that he had held in the radio booth. I got a note from this next guest that we're about to have on the podcast, uh, just letting me know he'd been following along the career and he's happy to see that, you know, Don's legacy has been left in good hands. I'm not sure about that, but that's the kind of gentleman that he is. And I'll let you take it from there, Pulver. Yeah, there's not too many... uh people that have been with an organization almost as long as Don was, but good point. I feel like uh, when you, when you go from being uh, an equipment manager, I was going to say a stick boy, but I don't, I don't know if he was a boy stick boy to equipment manager to then on the bench to the GM and then go to the pros. You win a championship with that club before going to the pros, you become how many years was it? 20 some odd years. He was with the Peterborough Pete's Mike. It was, uh, he, he was, the Peterborough Pete's essentially. And he held every job there was to be had in Peterborough before going up to the national hockey league with Arizona and then back to the Ontario hockey league. And he's always been around, whether it be with Arizona as a pro scout around the league. Uh, it's always nice to see our guest in the media room. Cause he's always got a story or Tui, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Tui. I see what you did there. Lots of stories from this guy. Well, I don't know that the stories get much better than the one we're going to tell. But the great thing about the story we're about to tell is that it comes from a storyteller. Jeff Tui joins us on this. And, and Jeff, I say it that way because this, the, the idea for this entire podcast was born from the last time we ran into each other in the media room in Kingston and you were doing some of your own podcasting and you just started talking about stories and you even said, I just got one more. If you got time before you go on the air, but you're, you're always so full of these stories and you're always so full of energy for this game, even after about four decades in it, I don't mean to age you, but yeah, where does your you passion, <laughs> where does yeah. your passion for the Ontario hockey league still come to this day? Uh, you know what, Mike? Well, thank first of all, Mike, Chris, thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. So you know me, anytime we're going to talk hockey, uh, I, I'm, I'm always looking forward to it. But you know what? I was in the league for a long time, and, and uh, when I was a, a kid, I loved the league. I, I used to – well, let's, let's go back a little bit. My, my whole interest in the OHL, there's a Kitchener connection here, and I might have told you, Mike, that, uh, you know, I grew up around Dave and Don Maloney. And uh, – 
you know, both played for the Kitchener Rangers, but they're from Lindsay originally, where, where I grew up, and their parents and my parents were, were best friends. So the first OHL game I ever saw was the Kitchener Rangers in Peterborough against the Peets, and that was to go and see Dave Maloney play, and then, you know, Don played. And so, you know, from the first time I, I, I saw it as a young kid, I, I, I loved the OHL, I followed it, I, you know, tr- aspired to get there as a player, but, uh, you know, I wasn't good enough, I got, got hurt at the end, but probably wasn't good enough anyways. And, uh, you know, when that didn't work out, obviously I set my sights on finding a way to get there, but I, I think I realized I had to learn from the ground up. So I started in tier two and, and, uh, with the Aurora Tigers as a scout when I was in high school. And, uh, as I probably told you, when you do that stuff, they don't pay us. So you're running around trying to find players at the two, tier two level, but met a lot of people. And then, uh, when I was in university, uh, I got an opportunity to start with the Peets. I was scouting for them up there and then, you know, just really never left them for 30 years. So uh, the passion goes way back and it, it, it's still there to this day. I mean, I still get excited when I go to a, a, a Peets game, uh, even though I'm not connected there at all, but just to, just to watch the OHL, watch the young players develop and uh, it still excites me. And uh, so hopefully that never leaves. Did you ever think when you were a trainer that you would eventually become the general manager of that hockey club? That was always the goal, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it was funny because back then, I mean, um, you know, all I wanted to do when I graduated from university was work for the Peets. And uh, back then they were such small. I mean, there was only two or three people every team had. And, and uh, that summer, the trainer uh, for the Peets just decided to quit and uh, go in another direction. So they needed somebody. And, you know, they knew me and, and Dick Todd knew I wanted to get involved more. I was I'd scouted for them for three years. And uh, so they offered me the job as a trainer. And uh, back then you could do it. You, you can't do it now. I mean, you know, I wasn't qualified, but I spent a lot of time, uh, uh, you know, learning how to sharpen skates, learning how to treat injuries. And anybody that doesn't know how to treat injuries, if there's an injury and you don't know what to do, put ice on it. That usually works. <laughs> so. But in back then, just to tell you how much it's changed, because back then our doctor <clears throat> that we had, he, he was really good. He taught me a lot. And, you know, I was taking stitches out of, of players, but he wanted me to learn how to start stitching. And uh, so he said, you just do it right on the bench. Somebody gets hurt, you stitch them right there. And I drew the line there. So, uh, but uh, it, it was one of the best things that, you know, at the time, you're, I remember my parents were, were really disappointed because I had a degree and here I am, you know, washing underwear and, but I never even, I loved it. I just, but, but being around the team every day and being around players, I mean, the, the lessons I learned were invaluable. And I always find to this day, I can, you know, when I was in Kingston or I was in Oshawa, you see players and you can, you get a sense, you know, whether they're upbeat or they're down or, you know, you kind of have a feel for how they think. So, you know, and I, even though I was a trainer, I was still doing the bulk of the scouting too. So I was all over the place uh, scouting and, uh, you, you know, you'd, you'd play on a Thursday night. I'd have to have everything done so that I could leave Friday morning to go to a tournament and then, you know, meet the team somewhere like, you know, Kingston or something Friday night. So, uh, but I never complained. I mean, it was, it was just to be part of it was for me great. And uh, obviously we had some success in Peterborough and to be around such great players that we had come through there is uh, I, I was really fortunate and uh, you know, 30 years in one place. I mean, I was, I was pretty bitter when I got fired there, but my wife's quick to remind me. I mean, in, in this business, when you can spend 30 years in one place, you're pretty fortunate. And my kids got to grow up here in Peterborough without moving around. So uh, 
it was, it was a it was a long journey, Chris. But uh, you know, ultimately that was my goal. Like I said, I, I wanted to be a general manager. I I wanted to be involved, but I wanted to learn from the bottom up, and I certainly did. Thinking of that though, just listening to you tell that story, Jeff, from from scouting as a university student when you're up at Laurentian and scouting for for the Pete's, and then getting that opportunity as a trainer, but you're still scouting. Look at how the game has evolved over the decades with all the specializations that now exist. A trainer is not just a, a trainer and, and, you know, washing the gear. These guys are highly trained medical staff, but then also you don't have scouts. You don't have trainers doing scouting anymore. Like look at the way staffs, even in the Ontario Hockey League, have changed over these decades. Oh, it's huge. I mean, back then we had uh, in Peterborough, when I started, Dick Todd was the coach and general manager. We had a secretary. We had Jacques Martin, who's uh, with the New York Rangers now. He, he was our assistant coach, but he taught part-time. So he only came in in the afternoon and me. So, you know, I did press notes. Uh, I did the sold ads. I found billets. So when I did take over, you know, I could, I could basically tell people there's nothing that you guys are doing that I haven't done and, and feel very fortunate to have been able to do that. But it's so much different now. The staff, I mean, I know in Peterborough now, they have eight people full-time still on their business side just just on the business side so and you know the kitchener the rangers are a much bigger organization so these the the ohl the teams now compared to when i started were vastly different but the way they were back then obviously created an opportunity for me so i was pretty fortunate and everybody had to chip in and do everything (laughs) you know so like i said selling ads uh you you name it i i did it there just to just to keep my job And, and back then you know they they would pay me uh uh, two weeks prior to the season starting and two weeks after the season ended. So then I would go and I worked for a swimming pool company, putting in pools for the first part of the summer. And then uh, uh, I worked every summer with Roger Nielsen at the hockey school. Uh, once that started, I left the swimming pool business and <laughs> went into uh, hockey school. So uh, uh, no, no complaints. I mean, like I said, I never, never complained. I just felt very fortunate to be able to do that. When you started scouting, you were doing so without a car. Now, the majority of your scouting, you don't need a car because you're doing it over, you know, watching games online and stuff. How difficult was it to scout and get your start in scouting when you couldn't even drive yourself? Well, I'll give you an example, Chris. This, this was a typical uh, night. So, so I was in, in, in Sudbury, and, and there was a tournament in Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, I can still remember the player Dick Todd wanted me to go see was Tony Herkus from Thunder Bay. And uh, so, you know, I don't even know if they realized they didn't have a car. So I had to figure out how to get to the Sioux. So I figured out there's a bus schedule that left at, uh, I think it left at like 11 o'clock or midnight, I think it was. And then I had a few stops on the way to the Sioux. So it got me in there about six, I think. And then tournament started at eight, stayed there till 11 o'clock at night. The next bus went back to, to uh, Sudbury. So it was 24 hours of, uh, you know, in between watching some games, but but I tell that story all the time and, and, and I never, like, it was never to me a big deal because it was like, I, I just want to do this, you know, and I want to be able to go and watch players. And, and, uh, you know, even when I was in tier two, I was living at home in high school. So I got to bum my dad's car or my mom's and uh, go around all these little towns, but uh, that's how you learn. And that's how you make contacts, you know? And, and uh, I mean, this is not a game that you should do if you're not passionate about it. I mean, scouting, if you're doing it just so you can wear the jacket, then you shouldn't be doing it. But if you're passionate about it and, you know, I love getting out to, to cities and meeting people and, you know, seeing kids play. And so uh, that, that was, that, that was, that was a record though. That was a 24 hour marathon that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 
it is what it is. But uh, again, how, how lucky was I as a young guy that the Peterborough Peets would let me scout? You know, thankfully I had a had background in tier two and, you know, I'd worked for Roger Nielsen, you know, every summer. So uh, there was a connection there, but I, I was I always thought I was very fortunate. You, you mentioned Roger Nielsen's name. You also had mentioned Dick Todd and Jacques Martin, uh, whose names are synonymous with hockey. Dick's particularly, of course, in the Ontario Hockey League. But focusing on, on Roger specifically, uh, Captain Video, a lot of people say he was yeah. ahead of his time. And some of the things he did as a coach were really blazing trails for those that came after him. You working with him as near as you were to him in your younger years, what influence did he have on you? Oh, he was huge, Mike. Roger was a huge influence on me. I learned the game from him. And, uh, you know, the style of play that the Peets played for years were all based on Roger. I mean, Roger was very uh, influential on Dick Todd, very influential on me. You know, the focus on defense. I mean, I, I never really understood defense, you know, how to play it. I mean, angles and positioning and your stick and things. Just the smallest little details that Roger, um, w w you know, you wouldn't even think of. And, and you know, and I had to do a lot of, because I did a lot, like I had to set up all the video stuff for him for the hockey school. So I did all his clips and had to put them all together. So I saw all the stuff he had. And, uh, but, you know, but more than that, just as a person, Roger was uh, just a very, very special person and uh, cared about people. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first got married, you know, my wife thought that we should have Roger over for dinner. At our, we just bought a house. We had a little bungalow. And so because everybody was always going to Roger's place and my wife thought, yeah, we should have Roger over. So Roger and the dog come over and uh, he's looking around my house and he says, uh, you know, where's, where's your furniture? And I said, I don't have any. <laughs> I, got a, I got a bed, I got a kitchen table and I got a little TV. That's all I got. <laughs> and he says, uh, well, that, that won't do. I mean, Roger never sweared or never swore, but he, his favorite thing was, well, what the crap, you know, that, that's not good. So, he says, I'll be back tomorrow. So the next day he pulls up with his truck and a trailer on the back and he had a bunch of furniture from his house and he basically furnished my house. <laughs> so, and, and he, you know, from a hockey perspective, the thing about Roger that, that I always stuck with me and, and, and I helped him run his coaching clinic from day one too. Like we, we did it every year in Windsor, but Roger was the ultimate in sharing information. You know, a lot of guys today that they'll hoard information. They don't want to share. Roger would share his information with anybody. You know, like anything you needed, he would share. And uh, so I've kind of, you know, adapted like his, you know, his caring about people. I think uh, that impacted me a lot. And the knowledge he, he shared with me and his willingness to share it, you know, it's always stuck with me. So to this day, I still, you know, there's young guys that reach out or they want to know, like, I don't have all the answers, but my knowledge, anything I have, I share, you know, and that all comes from Rogers. So, uh, just a just a tremendous person and uh, the most generous, kind person you'd ever meet. So uh, very, very, very fortunate. I grew up around him and a, and a huge influence. I read that you lived with Roger Nielsen and Jacques Martin. Well, when we first came to Peterborough, uh, Chris, uh, full time, well, Jacques Martin left uh, um, Ottawa and left his family there and came to Peterborough as an assistant coach and he was teaching, but him and I moved into Roger's place. So uh, Roger had gone to, to start with the NHL, but, but Jock and I uh, lived there. So it was just these two guys. It was just my first year in Peterborough and his first full-time year too. But two guys just, you know, we'd, we'd work all day, scout at night, talk hockey 24-7. And uh, it was pretty good. But 
I always say about Jock, I mean, he moved up a little quicker than me. You know, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still kicking around, but Jock's got a couple Stanley Cups there in, in Pittsburgh. He, he's done really well. But uh, I did spend a lot of time in, at, at Rogers. Like, he, he had a great place on the lake. And, uh, you know, when my kids were young, they'd love to go out there because he had a boat, he had a tennis court, everything that you'd want, he, he had. So but we spent a lot of hours out there, you know, splicing back when you had the old uh, videotapes you had to put together. So. So yes, I did live at his place, but but uh, uh, Roger was gone. It was just Jock and I, so uh, it was good. One of my favorite encounters with you over the years, Jeff, occurred in Peterborough at the arena, and before a game, you and I ran into each other in in the concourse, and or maybe I was near the Hall of Fame. Regardless, we went into the Hall of Fame, the Sports Hall of Fame, in the arena together and you gave me a tour unlike I could have ever had on my own because obviously as a Western Conference broadcaster we get there one time a year and I was just you know doing the little tour taking it all in and you took me through that Hall of Fame and I could tell your pride and your passion for the Pete's organization for the city of Peterborough I, I've never forgotten and I I loved it and one of the things that stood out from that tour not only was I almost late for broadcast because we got talking so much but you pointed out to me, and I don't think a lot of people know this, Wayne Gretzky in the Ontario Hockey League is synonymous with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, and we all know what he did there, but his first point was actually recorded as a Peterborough Pete. How did that come to pass, three games with the Petes? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great story, and I actually saw one of the games. I remember uh, going to a game. I saw him with the Petes, but he was playing on a junior B team, the Seneca Nationals. And uh, the Peets were affiliated with them, and it was it was his, his draft year. So because they were affiliated, they could bring players up. So uh, uh, Wayne got brought up to the Peets and and played the three games. And Mike, I don't know, I think you're missing the key trivial thing or trivia thing that I told you. It's the only team he never scored a goal for. Played three <laughs> games, he had three points, three assists, but no goals, right? So and and you know the great what story, a slum. There's a great story about uh, Wayne Gretzky, and this is before my time, but. Um, there was a guy by the name of Paul Goulet was a long time head scout of the Peets who was from Brantford. And he was very good friends with, uh, with Walter Gretzky. And the plan was that Wayne, you know, he knew the Peets through Paul Goulet, the head scout. And the only team he really wanted to go to in the draft was Peterborough, apparently. And the Sioux stepped up and uh, took him, but he very easily could have been a Pete um, for more than just the three games that he played. But uh, you know, I, 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 I do, there is a lot of passion, Mike, for, and I have no connection with the Peets anymore. I don't, you know, there's no connection there, but, but just the history. I, it's still, when I go in there and I think of the history and, you know, the players that came through there and, and, and I still go through that, that uh, hall of fame regularly because so many great players came here and, and I know the history. I, I, you know, I, I know, I know what went on here and before me during my time here. And, and uh, I, 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 you know, there is a lot of pride for sure. And I, if I had a short sleeve shirt on, I could show you, I got a Pete's tattoo on my arm. So, uh, you know, that tells you that, uh, even though there's no connection there anymore, I, I am a Pete and, uh, will always be, be proud of the guys that came through here. How awkward was that tattoo when you went to Oshawa? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was really awkward, Chris, when I, when I went to Oshawa, it was funny because, uh, uh, they had a press conference, and I was telling the story to somebody, but, but Brian Boyce, the trainer, he's, he's the best trainer in hockey, I think, and uh, he gave me a, bu- a bag with a bunch of stuff, you know, uh, gear for, for the to wear and stuff. First time I put on a general's jacket, I was like, it, it, it was funny because I was like, I didn't think this would, you know, it, it was weird, like, because if you go back 
to the early 80s and, and that rivalry, unless you lived through it, you don't understand how intense it was. And, and I use the word hatred. It's probably a strong word. But back then, it was hatred. We hated the generals. They hated us. When we went into Oshawa, um, the bus was silent from the time we left Peterborough. When they came into our building, it was sold out. And uh, if you, I used to tell players all the time, we'd play exhibition games against Oshawa early in the early eight. I used to tell the players, if you can't play here in Oshawa, then you can't play on this team. <laughs> Just tell you, like, because this is serious. And uh, so um, the, the tattoo never got a lot of notoriety there. I don't wear a lot of short sleeve shirts or anything, but uh, just wearing the jacket was weird, but it was a great couple of years. I loved it there. The fans were great. Uh, it's a, it's a great city. I, I never really knew. I mean, I, I just went there to games and leave and, and I'll also put it perspective. My wife loves the Oshawa center, which is a big shopping mall. And during my time in Peterborough, like I, I did everything I could to discourage her. Like don't shop there. Like you don't spend a cent in Oshawa. Like, but when I got there, you know, and you start to realize the city and, and the fans are passionate. It's, it's a, it's a great place. I, the building's great, obviously, but fans are passionate. They love the generals and uh, they're longtime fans. They know the history. So they, they embrace me a lot more than I thought they would. And, and I think one of the reasons was I bought a place, a little condo right downtown and they were, they were like amazed that, you know, why wouldn't you just commute? I said, no, no, I'm all in here. Like I, and uh, so I, I seem to win them over fairly quickly there. We had a couple of good years there. So um, again, long-winded answer. I apologize, but uh, I, I'll never apologize for the, for the tattoo. I, I'm, you know, I'm a Pete through and through. Isn't it interesting that the 06 championship team in Peterborough uh, wouldn't have thought of it at the time, but for the longest time, in the Ontario Hockey League stood out because it was an Eastern Conference team that had won not just an OHL championship, but obviously the Memorial Cup. But the, the OHL championship was an aberration because the Western Conference was winning them all until 2015 rolled around. And oh, lo and behold, there were the Ottawa Generals. But yeah. going back to that 06 team, uh, what are your memories from that season, Jeff? And, and obviously, I mean, so much I could throw in, but I was an outsider, obviously, just watching. You were, you were in it. What did it mean? What was that season like? You know, it was a great year, Mike. And, and I think that it's, it's, historically, it's the best season in the history of the franchise. You know, the record and the winning percentage and, you know, all that stuff. But it was special because two or three years prior to that, we missed the playoffs. And uh, it was the first time in the history of 20, uh, the first time in 28 years that we missed the playoffs. And uh, that, for a variety of reasons, but one of them, a couple of them were Eric Stahl was in the NHL. They were renovating the arena. We had to play 12 straight on the road. And, and we took a lot of heat locally and myself in particular. And, and uh, you know, we stuck with that, that core group. And that, that's a key to winning. You, you got to develop a core and then you, you, you complement it at the end. But um, that core uh, guys like Jamie Tardif, uh, Trevor Hendricks, um, you know, guys like that that have been around have been through the tough times. That was really special. And it was the first time really, um, we, you know, that I, I, I remember the night we won, uh, it was four straight against London too, which I mean, you know, to win beat London four straight anytime is uh, pretty special. But I remember, you know, I, I just stood on the boards. I said, I'm not even going to run out and I'm just going to stand there. I'm just going to take it in because the more you're around it, the, 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 the more you realize how hard it is and how, you know, it might be your last time. And uh, so I just stood there. I remember, and, and, 
actually the first guy that grabbed me at, like to, to drag me in after was Steve Downey, <laughs> but you know, former Ranger, but, uh, just taking it in and, and, uh, you know, I still have that memory of, uh, you know, just watching the guys and they, what they had been through. And it's a funny story too. And I'll, I'll, you know, if you guys got time, I'll tell you, but that year we missed the playoffs. Um, it was, like I said, first time in 28 years, you know, they want to, you know, they want to hang me downtown Peterborough. And, but one of the things I, 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 I said to the team, you know, I brought them in at the end. I said, listen, like we, we missed the playoffs here, but this, this is it's shitty. It's, it's crappy, but you know, this is an opportunity. So I said, we're going to have our own playoffs and I'm going to make it optional, obviously, but the next two weeks um, we're going to dig in here. We're going to get a head start on our conditioning. We're going to get a head start on some development stuff. We're going to do some things, but you got to be all in. And uh, if anybody's late, um, you know, you miss anything and you're out and we're going to have some fun. I'm going to take you to, you know, I took them down to some Marley game, uh, tour of, of the Air Canada Centre, Hockey Hall of Fame, had a nice dinner for them at the end. But in the middle, it was a lot of hard work. We were running five miles outside and in, in, I remember in the snow, like, and it was, it was still like, it was cold. And uh, so part of winning, I believe is that you got to go through some trauma and uh, that team went through a lot of trauma, not just from missing the playoffs, but, the, but the, the, those kids all stayed for an extra two weeks and dug in and took advantage of it instead of just saying, okay, let's just get out of here. Uh, it's like, no, no. And, and we brought in speakers. We, we did a lot with that group. And then to finally see them win the OHL championship four straight. I mean, that team, we never lost a We never lost a game in the, in the playoffs at home. Uh, Never lost an overtime game. Uh, I think after the second round, we never lost a game. So, um, but it all goes back to the roots of missing the playoffs and then, you know, what we did with it. So pretty special and uh, pretty proud of that group. But it, it, you know, it took some trauma to get us there. Any team that goes in to Peterborough knows that that rink gives you guys a bit of a home ice advantage. Um, you had a player during your career that also helped that when you opened the door and let him out for 40 minutes at a time in Chris Pronger, you say that, you know, you helped get him ready for the amount of ice time he played in the NHL by just letting him out for 40. When you remember him coming in with that big mullet, did he ever give you a hard time about your mustache? <laughs> he gave me a hard time about a lot of things, Chris. I get a lot, I still get a lot of, a lot of grief over that mustache. It was in style back then. And, uh, but uh, you know what, Chris was, uh, and I, I'm pretty close with Chris to this day, but he, I still remember, I mean, he was six foot five pounds, you know, and he had the mullet and just string bean and we knew he was good. I, I remember first seeing him and we played high school in Dryden and then we played junior B in Stratford and, and just watching. We knew he was good, but when you had him on the ice, you know, I was coaching and I, I coached the defense. So he made me look pretty smart, but, but you know, just to watch what he did and his passion. He was first guy on the ice every day. He would, uh, he would sit with me on the bus and never shut up. We, I remember one night from Sudbury to Peterborough asking questions, you know, talking hockey, asking questions. So, you know, when he went second overall, like that, I know he was going to be a hall of famer, uh, maybe not, but that I know he's going to be re- like a special player. Oh yeah. He's, he's pretty, and he's so mean, like he was competitive and driven. And so, um, yeah, he, he learned to play 40 minutes under me for sure. <laughs> you, sorry, Mike, you, you mentioned real quick, you mentioned the, the scariness on the ice. I think that's a, what a lot of people recognize when they say Chris Pronger, but you talk about it. A lot of people behind the scenes call him a really funny guy. Was there a switch that flipped with him when the door opened? Oh yeah. And he keeps his circle pretty tight, but if you're in that, you see like the, 
the, the sense of humor he has, he's, he's really funny. He, he, and, and he's a really like, he, he's got a lot of energy. I mean, when he came to us, his car had a, a license plate on it. There was a truck. I think he had chaos six. <laughs> that was his. <laughs> so, but, but a kind guy, like he, you know, when he went into the hall of fame, I mean, he, he had my wife and I there for the whole thing. We sat about four rows from the front and it's a limited amount of people. They let into that thing. Um, when he won the Stanley cup, brought me out to Anaheim, you know, to, to celebrate with it. A lot of guys do that. So I, I don't think it's unique to Chris, but just shows that there, there's a side to him that you know, he doesn't forget. Um, if he, he's the type of guy as busy as he is now, if I fired him off a text, he'd get back to me in, you know, within an hour or so. So really, really good, good guy. And, uh, but that, that competitiveness and that drive that, that never changed. <laughs> So many names, Jeff, and, you know, we talked about the stalls earlier. We talked about lots of uh, coaches, obviously. You mentioned Steve Downey, who was a guy that was a lot like we're talking about with Chris Pronger, I think, different levels, I understand, but a terror on the ice, but a much different guy off the ice from certainly the guy I got to know for his brief time in Kitchener, Pronger, et cetera. I know it's kind of like asking about a favorite child, but is there a player or players over your years that have really stood out to you for any reason? Well, I, you know, there's there's a lot of them, obviously, Mike, and you, you risk, you know, missing somebody. But kind of the one off the top of my head was Eric Stahl. I mean, you know, we drafted Eric um, 13th overall that year, and a lot of people laughed at us. And, you know, I, I can't sit here and honestly say I knew he was going to be that good. But the night before the draft, we were – Norm Robert, who was our head scout at the time, really liked Eric, and I liked him. And, you know, we were debating him and I shared a room at the hotel. I think the draft – I don't know where the draft play was in Toronto that year, but so anyways, we, you know, we're sitting and, you know, we're back and forth. And I, I remember saying to, to Norm, I said, you know what? It's midnight. But I said, I got to phone his coach. So I phoned the coach to Thunder Bay Bantams at the time to tell him who I am. And, and he, and he confirmed to me, he's like, yeah, he, he's a good player, you know? And I said, well, I'm thinking about taking him in the first round. And he goes, what? First round? Like, no. So I hung the phone up. I said to Norm, well, that didn't help. <laughs> so uh anyways we took them and and you know i remember getting up to announce it and there was another team uh uh right by the podium there and somebody yelled out no way <laughs> so so they laughed at us and and when you first saw eric he was just a scrawny scrawny little kid and and again i don't want to take up too much of your time but th this is a this is a pretty good story about eric and he was so shy when he came. We did a fitness test about a week after we drafted him. Couldn't get a word out of him. And his mother was with him. And so on the Sunday, I was uh, going to take him out for breakfast and then take him to Toronto to fly him back to Thunder Bay. And Eric his normal kind of, you know, very shy little little kid sitting there. Wouldn't, wouldn't say anything. And his mother, uh, Linda, as part of the conversation, just happened to say to me, she's like, you know, Jeff, I'm really lucky. I've got four boys. And they're all good, good kids, you know? And she said, I think it's because of this rink that we built, uh, my husband built, we live on a farm and there's nothing else to do. So we built them a rink and Eric sat up in his chair and the light went on and he started talking about this rink to me. And then he was like, you know, Mr. Tui, I got, my dad puts boards up, he hangs lights, you know, we got a water truck so we can flood, I can skate whenever I want. And I remember, you know, I said to my wife after I said, I, I don't know how good he's going to be, but he's a player. You know, just you could see the passion. And uh, I never forgot that about Eric. And, and, you know, we didn't know he was going to grow. I mean, when we drafted him, he was 5'11", 142 pounds. You know, when we left us, he was probably 
63190 or something. So um, that that's a special. And the other the other one, Mike, that that really and, and Chris that I found was really rewarding was Sean Thornton. Uh, you know, Thornton had gone through two drafts and and got cut from every junior B team in in uh, in the Oshawa area. And uh, it's a funny story, but I was at a tournament in Gatineau, Quebec, and uh, everybody left because they thought you know it was pretty well over. But I wanted to see. Um, I think it was a Thunder Bay team or somebody played the very last game of the night. So I had to sit through about three games of crap. Like they were, there was nothing. And everybody left. And in the last game that I was watching before Thunder Bay, Oshawa Major Midgets were playing. And uh, they were getting beat by this team from Montreal. And I'm falling asleep there. And, and halfway through the game, somebody ran the Oshawa goalie and then challenged the bench. And uh, this kid jumped off the bench and grabbed the guy and, you know, gave it to him. And, and there was a lady, it's just fate, but there was a lady sitting beside me and she was right into the fight, you know, and I, I looked at her and I said, oh, kid looks like he knows what he's doing. And she looked at me and she says, uh, he's never been beat. <laughs> so I said, oh, you, you know that kid? That's my boy, she said. So went to the draft, I put him on the draft list and I said to the scouts, I go, listen, I don't know. I saw this guy play like, and you know, I know he's a tough kid. So ninth round, I'm just going to take him, but he won't even be here. So I went up, announced Peter O'Pete, select Sean Thornton, go sit down, boom, right beside me. There's, a, there's this kid. And I said, who are you? And he goes, I'm Sean Thornton. I said, well, what do you do? How, I didn't ever talk to the kid or anything. He says, I only came because my friends were getting drafted. So so we took him, and so the kid, you know, Sean went from couldn't make a junior B team or anything around Oshawa. He got cut everywhere. He was playing major midget, made our team in in '96 that uh, were OHL champions, and has gone on, you know, two Stanley Cups. Um, he's uh, one of the chief operating officers now for the Florida Panthers. So um, that that's that's a that's one where you get lucky. I mean, again, you could sit here and say, well, I I watched him play. I knew, you know, I got lucky. I just happened to be sitting there. And took advantage of an opportunity, and then you know Sean made the most of it. But that, those kids, kids like that, are that, that's pretty rewarding. I'm going to bounce around generations and go back to the early '80s. Mike already asked you about Wayne Gretzky, but I'm going to ask you about the greatest player to ever play the game of hockey. <laughs> Stop it already! <laughs> Mike and I get in this argument every time we go to Peterborough because Steve Eiserman was once a Peterborough Pete in your early days. Do you have yep. any memories of the greatest player, Steve Eiserman, or the teams oh. he was on? Chris, I always say that uh, uh, my very first draft with the Peets, we took Steve Eiserman. So, uh, you know, it sounds like I had something to do with it, which <laughs> I didn't, because I, I was in university at the time. That was a Jacques Martin pick. But I remember Steve coming down to the, to the table, and he had the long hair. And Dave Dryden was the coach at the time. And I remember Dave just said to him, uh, get your hair cut. You know, and from that point on, I don't think there was a great relationship between Steve and, and Dave Dryden. And unfortunately, Dave got fired about halfway through that year and Dick Todd took over. And that's when Steve really took off. And Dick, Dick you know, was really good with, like he understood players and gave Steve the opportunity. And, and uh, he, just so you, Chris, I'll give you a trivia. Do you remember what number he started with in Peterborough? Six. No, I believe it was eight. <laughs> he started with eight and then he went, he got his iconic 19. But, but do you realize too, I believe that the year that he got drafted, uh, by the Pete's, I think he led the Central Junior League in scoring as a 15-year-old. So he's a, you know, obviously very special uh, leader. Like the, the qualities he brought to Detroit. When you hear people talk about him and 
the work ethic, the toughness, the commitment, you know, and they questioned him early in his career, whether he, you know, was suitable there to be a captain, but uh, Steve's gone on to be, uh, be, be pretty good. So he, he's right up there. He is one of the best. So I'm not going to argue with you on that one. I had to fanboy a little. Yep. Nothing wrong with that. I knew it was going to happen. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I want to jump back to, to what you were just talking about with Sean Thornton and a goalie getting run and a player challenging the bench. And I'm, I'm thinking back, Jeff, because on one of our recent episodes of this podcast, we talked to Graham Bonner, who has a great story uh, with his overcoming addiction, most notably, but of course played in the mid eighties up in Sault Ste. Marie. And one of the stories we got into was when the Greyhounds were in Hamilton when the Steelhawks were still Oh, yeah, around. I remember that game. Yeah, it's a game of the week, the OHL yeah. game of the week. And what happens before the game even starts? Well, there's yeah. a Donnybrook, right? Yeah, and uh, Bill LaForge. Exactly. Bill LaForge yeah. with Hamilton, Crispy up in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. Bookaboom would be on the ice then. I mean, just... Robert, maybe Robert. Absolutely. It was a different game. This was the yeah. game that I grew up watching in the yeah. Ontario Hockey League. And... Look, I get it. We understand. We all understand where we are at with player safety, with health, with, with life beyond the game. But there was something about that era, Jeff. And, and yeah. we look at where the game is at now. How fond are your memories of, of what the game used to be like? And, and how much of it might we be missing still in today's game? Well, you're definitely missing something, Mike. Uh, but but just, just to go back a little bit, Graham Bonner played for the Peets. And Graham still to this day is, is, is a very good close friend of mine, but I'll tell you a quick Graham Bonner story. So we, we were going into Belleville one night just after we got him in a trade. And he said to me before the game, uh, who's in net tonight for Belleville? And I said, I think it's Mike Bishop was his name. And uh, he looked at me, he goes, well, that's good. I'll get four tonight. And game's over. He had four <laughs> with his last one coming from center. And I remember saying, how did you, he goes, ah, he played in London. He said, I own that guy. So he, he Graham Bonner, one of the best pure goal scorers that, you know, that I ever saw. But getting back to your question, Mike, it's different now because what, what the fans miss, like for instance, when we used to play Oshawa or, or Belleville, <clears throat> there was a buzz in the city because those games were tough and they, you know, they weren't for the faint of heart. Now, having said that, now, I, I don't like stupidity either, you know, but, you know, and, and guys back then had memories. They didn't forget. Like they, you know, the, and the teams, it's a little bit like the NHL used to be in that they didn't communicate with each other. Like, not like they do now. They're all friends. They all play, you know, like it, it was a different time. And, and uh, you really miss that buzz. Like, like I said, Oshawa, Peterborough, Oshawa coming into Peterborough on a Thursday night whole day even me getting ready for I was nervous you know like and just that intensity and and we used the word hatred but but there was respect I mean we respected the generals but we did not like and uh they did not like us and and so so that intensity that used to be there yeah it, it it takes away from the game having said that the skill and the speed of the game now makes it really entertaining and to see special players like you know, when uh, Connor McDavid was playing junior players like that, I mean, you get a chance to see them in junior. It's a different game, but you do miss the intensity, or I do. And, uh, you know, the physical part of it, not necessarily the fighting, I mean, but just the hard physicality of it. And, you know, the, the you know, like now you can't even, you know, chirp. You can't, you know, like Ty Domi, we, 
he, he couldn't go through a, he couldn't go five minutes without threatening somebody. <laughs> you know? So, so now for him, it'd be a tough, tough time, but, but the characters, you know, there was characters back then too, like that, you know, like a tie or, you know, every team had them. And uh, so again, long winded answer, but I miss that part of it. I really miss the rivalries, the, the intensity, uh, the dis- the fierce dislike between teams. And, uh, you know, that, that's never going to come back the way the game is now. But having said that, again, watching these skilled players now, it's, it's a treat. You mentioned those skilled players. Through the years in the OHL, you've seen plenty of them from the stalls we've talked about, Iserman, all the way through Lindros, McDavid, and most recently Shane Wright. If someone were to ask you who is the most dominant OHL player you've ever seen, your answer would be? Eric Lindros. Yeah. Just, and I'll tell you why, Chris. We played him one year ten times. And this was before overtime. Our record was 0-9-1. and one. <laughs> we, you know, and we'd be close sometimes. And we'd be like, oh, I think he's sleeping tonight, so we might be close. He'd just wake up in the third. And, like, he was so physically dominant, and, and he was mean. Like, he didn't – like, we had a – I probably don't remember a defenseman. Jamie Pegg was a really, back in the day, unique because he was small. But he was a puck mover, run the power play, really skilled. And, uh, you know, we used to worry for him because Lindra, he didn't care. Like he, he, he would kill him if he got a chance. So, so not, not only in ability wise, but just like mean competitive. And he was the most dominant I ever saw. We just couldn't, like I said, oh, we're all nine and one, like try, try living with that for a year against Oshawa. <laughs> you talked earlier about Chris Pronger and still staying in touch to the point there where if you sent him a text now, He'd, he'd get back to you. Graham Bonner remains a friend. Yeah. Uh, we, we know that the, the game is kind of small in, in some ways. Once you get into that circle, you see the same faces. You, you stay in touch with people. To this day, Jeff, uh, is that what it's really all about for you, the relationships that were built and that you maintain to this day? Yeah, 100%. You know, and, you know, that's all you really get out of it is relationships and memories. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, back when I started, you weren't getting rich doing it. Not like these guys are now they make, a, you know, good for them. I, you know, but, but it's the relationships, it's the friendships. And, and I'm sure you guys see it. You, you see somebody that you haven't seen for well 20 years. And it's like, you just go right back to junior. I mean, I was with the coyotes. I was in Cape Breton one night and a guy says, uh, Hey Jeff, I looked and I said, Jesus, John Hanna, John Hanna played for us for half a year with the Pete's. He's on the board of, board of directors for the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles now. So just run into him in Cape Breton. It's like we were never apart, you know. And um, so, yeah, I treasure those. But that's, it is about relationships and friendships. And Graham Bonner is, uh, is a prime example. Like he, him and I talk a lot about a lot of different things. And uh, he's been through a lot. Um, but just a really good person. And it's real easy to be, be you know, friends with, uh, with the Chris Prongers or, you know, guys that are in the NHL, like, you know, that we have relationships with, but the other guys that are teachers or, you know, like, like John Hanna is a teacher, you know, but he's on the board of directors for Cape Breton. Um, all these guys, like it just, just, just the memories are great. Cause we went through a lot, like we won championships. And so I, I treasure those to this day for sure. Having the ability to be a scout in the OHL and then move up to be a GM and then you become a scout in the National Hockey League. What are some of those memories from the war room, if you will, at the draft? Or you, in an occasion where you're trying to pitch your general manager, I like this guy, or on the reverse when you're the GM and you have two scouts saying, you got to take this guy, and the other guy's going, no, you got to take this guy. 
Yeah, it's tough when you're in junior and you've got guys, you know, you're, you got to kind of arbitrate, you know, and, and inevitably you're going to hurt somebody's feelings because somebody's players going higher than the others. But, uh, you know, again, my time in Arizona, um, the, the best times there were with Don Maloney. Again, you know, an ex-Kitchener Ranger, uh, someone that I grew up around. Um, you know, Don, Don, Don liked debate, like, and, and I don't think we ever got to the point of, uh, you know, the debates were, were never personal. Um, as the group grew in Arizona, we had this small group there. Don left, John Chica came in, but it was the same group. And as the group kind of grew, one of the great things, Chris, was that we had some really spirited fights. Like we would argue like the F-bombs were flying and, and, uh, but then as soon as it was over, we'd go out and have a couple beers. Like, and it was a mutual respect among that staff. And unfortunately the coyotes cleared everybody out. And then they got into all their cheating scandal and all that other stuff they did. But, but we had a really good group there. And, and, and the great thing about that group, Chris, was that the whole passion was just to get the best player. Like it wasn't about getting my player or your player. It was just, let's just get the best, you know? So, so we, we had, we had some real spirited uh, arguments there with that crew. Uh, uh, I, I learned a lot too. You know, Don, Don Maloney is a, as a leader, is a, he's a tremendous person. I don't know how well you guys know him, but I mean, he was a captain of the Rangers, pitching Rangers, um, captain of the New York Rangers, but just, just a solid person that, you know, cares about people, um, listens to you. Uh, I remember Don w- would call me the odd time when I was with the Coyotes and say, like, I haven't talked to you. Like, why don't you call me? And I'm like, well, I don't really want to bother you. I figure you got better things to do. Like, and you don't need me calling you, you know, but, but he would check in and, and just a really good person. So, and then, you know, sitting at the, the war room or sitting at the table, um, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you kind of a funny story, but like we, we had a first round pick, I don't know what, three or four years ago, it was, the, it was the second last or the last pick in the first round. And so the way it works at the table is you've got a hockey operations guy's got a computer there and he can tell you, like before the picks made or announced, you can kind of tell who's been taken. And we really wanted this defense, wanted them really bad. And so we asked the hockey ops guy, is like, is his name still in the pool? And he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, he's still in there. So I remember I was sitting right beside Don and Don pounded. He's like, yes, yes, finally, we're getting some good luck. We're getting our guy. Like, yes. And we're all like, yes. Columbus go up and they go, Columbus, Blue Jackets draft. <laughs> the exact player we thought we were getting. <laughs> We looked at this hockey ops guy. He's like, I don't know. His name's still there. I don't know. So anyways, there's always some humor there too, you know, but uh, it, it's high stakes obviously at that level. And, uh, you know, you're moving up, you're trading down. You've got to know the draft. You've got to understand it. And uh, we, we, we did a lot of that uh, trade down, get, gain picks, you know, and still get guys that we wanted. So uh, I miss that part of it, but uh, I, I obviously couldn't stay there in Arizona after the changes they made. So uh, wish them well. You talk about high stakes, and it just makes me think, again, a guy that's been in the game as, as long as you have, and obviously the decades with the Peets stand out for you, but you've, you've bounced other teams, Oshawa, Kingston, NHL with the Arizona Coyotes. Do you, do you thrive on the pressure, Jeff? Because it's, it's famously said in this game, right, that coaches are hired to be fired. I mean, and it's all about production. Hey, show me the results or we'll show you the door. Do you, do you need yeah. to thrive on that pressure to, to survive in this game so long? Yeah, you do. You have to accept it. Um, I, I got better at it. I mean, when I got fired in Peterborough, uh, it was devastating. You know, I didn't, you know, I thought that only happened to other people. <laughs> but, 
you know, the, the great thing about it, uh, Mike and Chris, is that it was good for me. And, and uh, I learned from that that, you know, I, I could survive it. I can survive being fired. I'm not afraid of it. Uh, you know, I, I think my last year in Peterborough, there was a lot going on behind the scenes and uh, a little bit of a power struggle there. And just it really wore on me. And uh, I can remember my first year in Arizona. I was in Ottawa and I was staying over and I, and I met my daughter for lunch because she was going to school there and it was maybe October and she looked at me and she said like do you, do you like working for Arizona and I said yeah it's good you know nobody bothers me I, I was kind of beat up at the end there in Peterborough she I said why why do you ask and she said well you look so much better now like than you did like near the end there in Peterborough so I think I let it get to me a little bit near the end in Peterborough because I knew I, I can read what's going on behind the scenes um, but having recovered from that an awful thing to say but if you're going to be in this business everybody should get fired once because you learn like I, I learned I, I got better um, I, and again I learned I can I, I can handle it like if it happens I can deal with it you know so it made me better but but you have to accept the pressure you have to understand that you know you, you're not there uh, to be average you know ultimately your goal is to win and thankfully we won four times in in, in Peterborough over the years four championships Thankfully, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but you know, if you don't, if you don't have a bit of that on your resume, it's, it's tough. So that, that comes with the territory and, you know, young guys that are into it now, they've never been fired. I'm sure they'll be like me and take it hard, but hopefully they, they learn. That's how you get better. You know, adversity makes you stronger. So I don't, I wouldn't wish what I went through and losing my job in Peterborough on anybody, but when you look back on it again, yeah, that was probably a good thing for me developmentally. You mentioned that nowadays teams have, you know, like eight guys on their office staff or back in the day, it might not have been that many with you, which a lot of the responsibility then falls to the general manager and doing the scouting. And when you were behind the bench and so on, how difficult was that with a young family at home? It was hard. You know, I had two girls and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, it's funny, Chris, I I was very fortunate. Um, You know, you look back and go, geez, I missed a lot of stuff, you know, and I remember one time we were sitting out in the back by the pool and my oldest daughter, we were just talking about, I said, you know, I, I got some regrets because I missed, you know, a lot. And, uh, and I said, but you know, I was like, I was trying to survive, you know, and she looked at me and she said, uh, yeah, but you were always there when we needed you. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, so it is difficult. And, you know, as I said at the start, or to tell you guys like she she's here temporarily with us uh and our husband's been transferred but so she's got her two-year-old here and uh i treasure every minute with him like and keep this on the down low but i actually took him we got him in gymnastics and i was singing humpty dumpty with him the other day so uh, so but i mean you know that's again you learn right you, you learn the, the importance of your family and and uh but it was hard i missed a lot and uh you know i was lucky i had wife that understood it and, and, you know, kids that didn't really know any different, but, you know, uh, look back on it and said, yeah, but you were there when we needed you. So, so I, I'm very fortunate. Gymnastics. That's, that's good for the balance. You know, when he puts on a pair of skates, I got it. Yeah. Well, that's the start. I'll tell you the other day I had him out and there was a girl down the street playing lacrosse and, uh, she was throwing a lacrosse ball against the house and, uh, my little little grandson, he stopped and he was staring at it. He wouldn't move for like 10 minutes. I'm like, all right, let's go, man. We got to move. We're going to the park. So he walked a few steps and there was a, there was a, like a stick on the road and he picked that thing up and he was holding it with two hands. Like he was, you know, so like, ah, maybe we'll have something there. <laughs> so, 
so anyways, yeah, we'll get him into skating. He's, he's going to skate. I, I, you know, I really believe every kid should play sports and I, I don't care if he's any good at it. I, you know, I just, if I, I told my daughter, if he played house league hockey and loved it, I'd be happy. <laughs> you know, if he loved it and got good at it and did something with it, that great. But you know, you gotta, whatever, if he, whatever sport he wants to play, if he, if he likes it, whether he's good at it or not, all that matters is he likes it. So, hey, lacrosse, that fits right in up there anyway, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, we like to do a thing called the uh, Fast Five as we wrap these things up. So it can be from the mundane to the philosophical. Okay, right. so whatever comes to mind. You ready? Yep. Okay, starting with the mundane. Cats or dogs? Dogs, 100%. Thank goodness. I knew there was a reason we got along. No time, no time for cats. <laughs> okay, when it comes to French fries, ketchup or gravy ketchup don't eat gravy that always reminds me of owen sound so this ties into the next question because don cameron always said when you're in owen sound they got the best fries in the league we always would get a bucket and chris and i still do that before uh, an attack rangers game so in connection to that any media room anywhere and i know in your earliest days there wouldn't have been food served at a rink but where can you get the best food or where have you ever had the best media room food you guys are asking me you've been to saginaw right <laughs> <laughs> but before saginaw you know where it used to be was plymouth like in the day well you probably remember mike like they they used to have the full meals there but uh, you can't beat saginaw like you can just go in there and gorge i mean with the pizza the <laughs> donuts everything in there they they do a great job there I loved it in Plymouth with the, the vending, the pop vending machine, but you didn't have to put the money in. You just, it was like magic. You pushed the button out, it came. You remember the, the, the fresh cookies they used to have there? They were still warm when they put them out. So good. Only so in good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what rink did you step into, Jeff, when you looked around and said, okay, I'm in a barn. We use barn a lot when we're talking about arenas. What one were you in where you're like, okay, this is a barn? In Ontario? Or anywhere. Anywhere. Well, in the Quebec League, remember there used to be a team in Bullport? The Bullport Harfangs, they were called. And I went in there one time to scout. for some, I don't know why I was there, but I was like, wow, this is a Quebec League arena. So that, 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 that one was, that was a tough one to go into. Um, some of those other ones up, up in Rouen and, and uh, places like that, they're old, but they've they got a lot of history. They're nice. But I just remember Bullport. That, that's a bad rink. They don't have a team there anymore, and I, for good reason. <laughs> okay last one we know that you've got the pete's tattoo and obviously that is your team where your allegiance is in the ontario hockey league what about the nhl who's got your heart i've always been a montreal canadians fan grew up uh you know and and, and you know what and secondary there's a secondary team too is new york rangers and that all goes back to dave and don maloney but you can't beat the history of the canadians I mean, you just can't. That that's it's too special. And we actually played a game in there. Remember, we used to have the, the interleague play, and uh, we had to play. Um, was it? Laval? I think yeah, it was Laval. They were the Laval Rocket. I think they were called, or whatever they were called. But they played out of the the Bell Center, and uh, we had to go in there and play them one night. I won't keep you, but get this schedule: play play at home Saturday, Sunday afternoon in Montreal. <laughs> and, and, and people wondered why I was so opposed to those interleague games. It was just stupid, I thought. But, but it was kind of neat to play in there. It was about 8,000. So that was, that was cool. Just like, and the other one on that note, Mike and, and Chris, you probably remember going into Joe Lewis when the, the junior wings were there. And you'd get 14,000, 15,000 in there for a junior game. So those were special. 
And I'll get one last one. I'll tell you the last one. The biggest, one of the biggest thrills I ever had, because I'm a music fan, we played the old Detroit Ambassadors in Cobo Hall in Detroit. Oh, and wow. So we went in there their first year, and, and everybody was kind of looking at the rink, and I'm like, my all-time favorite album is Bob Seger Live Bullet, recorded live at Cobo Hall. So I'm like, this is where Bob Seger recorded Live Bullet. No thoughts of the game at all. I was just thinking, but we were in Cobo Hall to, to play the, uh, the Ambassadors back then, so that was a special rink, too. I was going to add a quick one there, Mike, about uh, you don't have to, if you follow Jeff on Twitter, you know he's a huge music fan. I was going to put him on the spot. He may have just leaked it. But if you were to give us, let's say, your top three bands or performers of all time. Well, you got to start with the Rolling Stones, right? Okay. Like, I've never seen them, but but to be able to see them at some point would have been, or would be really special. Um, After that, I've seen Kid Rock three or four times. I mean, he's not an iconic like the Stones, but you ever want to see a good concert? I mean, he's... He's really good. And another one that I've seen that I got really excited. My wife thought it was like a little schoolgirl, giddy little schoolgirl to see them was bad company. So those aren't all like high end, but you start with the stones just to be able to see those guys. And like I said, uh, kid rock, great performer. And I just love bad company and their music and, uh, and, and, the history there too so anyways there you go there's three quick ones for you chris i like it this is it's too bad see i'm trying to keep it fresh I just with graham bonner asked him about music and it came out leonard skinnard and black sabbath so i was just i knew you loved the music but i thought well i'm gonna get something different from jeff this time well but, i can tell you i'll tell you about about graham bonner what i saw ozzy osbourne that that's maybe the best concert i've ever seen but 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 graham we met before the the concert he was in the second row and from the stage, I was way at the back with my daughter. He's sending me pictures from, <laughs> yeah. So nobody's a bigger fan. He's seen Ozzy Osbourne probably, I think he told me like 15 times or something. So anyways, that was another great concert. So Okay, I, I promise it's going to be the last thing. But when you talked about playing in Peterborough on a Saturday into Montreal for that interleague game on a Sunday afternoon, and you're talking about some of those barns in the queue, it just makes me think quickly, but Cornwall. Do we need him back in the that. league or what? They should be. I think I've, so too. I've, I've said, Mike, ever since they left, like they had a, an owner there that caused that team to leave and no disrespect to Sarnia. I mean, that's a great franchise, but the Cornwall Royals with two Memorial cups and the history there, hundred percent, they should be back in the league. I'll always support that. I'm a big, big fan of the Royals and the history and that building still, that, that building with some modifications would still work, I think. So I'm with you on that one. Bring back okay. the Royals and great jerseys. Absolutely. We're going to get you back on. It'll be the Cornwall Royals uh, reunion is what we're going to do. Anytime. I'd look forward to it. A yes for the Royals from Pete's royalty. (laughs) Hey, that's being a little, that's that's generous, but I'll take it. Thanks, Chris. That's why they pay him the big bucks, Jeff. This was great. Thanks so much for doing it. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot for having me on. I love talking hockey, as you can tell, and I ramble on, but thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. 
Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.